Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to Matt and Brett Love Comics. This is one of your hosts, Brett. Oh, should I should I introduce myself? Yeah, go on and do it. I was trying to see how long that would go. <laughs> this is Ben, who is... I'm not a host, I'm a guest, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is the podcast where we take comics and talk comics with comics. And this is a do-over episode as loyal uh, podcast subscribers might have noticed an episode did not go up on Monday because the man doesn't want us to talk about today's content. That would be... I think so. Huh. I mean, J.J. Abrams is a powerful guy. Yeah. J.J. Abrams gets all say over every podcast that goes up on iTunes, and he loved what me and Matt had to say last week, but he was not thrilled with you. (laughs) That, um, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so he took it out on us. Um, so we're blaming J.J. Abrams. No, uh, I love you, J.J. Abrams. I've loved you since Alias. Um, but yeah, today we are, re- we are re-talking about, without Matt, who unfortunately is as busy as I think all three of us are as we gear up to go to Heroes Con this weekend. <laughs> oh yeah, probably you should lead off with an announcement about that. Yeah, uh, lost it off. Uh, we are going to Heroes Con this weekend, this June 7th through 9th. So if you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, and you're listening to this, the instant it goes up, we will be in your city within 48 hours. <laughs> uh, come to Heroes Con where we will be hanging out. We'll be moderating two panels. Uh, this is a good thing because the schedule went up since we did the first time, so I now know. That Matt and I will be moderating the Stumptown panel about uh, Stumptown Comics, about, about the comic book Stumptown by Greg Rucka uh, on Friday at 4, I do believe. And then Saturday at noon, we will be also be moderating the comic book covers panel, which has Dave Johnson, Joe Quinones, Phil Noto, and Francisco Francavilla on it. So those are the two uh, panels we'll be moderating and turning into podcasts. Hopefully, unless again J.J. Abrams gets mad at us. <laughs> I, I should I should probably fess up. It was entirely my fault. I was trying to uh, I was recording and I ignored a innocuous looking warning on my computer, and that warning was actually trying to tell me that it had stopped recording twenty minutes in. So, <laughs> uh, but I'll, but on the brighter note, at the very end of this episode, we are going to have a. Uh, me and Matt's audio is fine from that episode, so I guess we could also release as a bonus just me and Matt rambling to an invisible third party. Um, but we will be including Matt's thoughts on this at the very end of the episode, so he will his presence is still felt. Um, and we're discussing today the two Star Trek X Men crossover comics. I don't even think we mentioned what we were discussing. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, I am a huge X Men fan, and Ben is a huge Next Generation fan. I, it's Star Trek in general. Yeah, yeah, but specifically the Next Generation. No, that's not true. Well, no, I, 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 I 
as a child of the 90s, I grew up watching Next Generation uh, pretty regularly, and I watched um, Voyager when it came out. I didn't watch as much Deep Space Nine. Um, you chose Voyager over Deep Space Nine? Uh, I don't remember. Well, Deep Space Nine, I, I, I've, I've actually started watching it now on Netflix, and I think it's easier... Uh, it's it's a more adult show. I mean, basically, yeah. like it's not. It's, I was like, look, they're just on a ship on a space station. They're not going anywhere. Like that's boring. Um, but Ferengis and wharfs. Yeah. Also, like not not really my favorite. Uh, yeah. I, look, I just didn't. Okay. I, I don't yeah, remember yeah. why. Let's. let's... Well, no, I think of everyone I know. I don't know for some reason. I feel like you. Most people I know are very big Next Generation fans, and I don't hear much. Maybe much appreciation for the original series, or much talk about the original series. Well, so you definitely do talk about the original series and know your original series. Yes, I, I think the I think the reason is that it basically like that you know Next Gen was on television in syndication forever. It was well, I mean, I think I think of my generation, right? That's the, that's the Star Trek I grew up watching. And I think if you wanted yeah. to watch original series, you sort of had to go out a, a little bit further out of your way to, to watch it. I mean, definitely it's easier to come by than a lot of other old series, but it wasn't on TV regularly, you know, in the 90s. Um, you know, that's changed now. Now on, on, on you can go Netflix, watch... Netflix, you got it all. Yeah, Netflix, you can watch it, it all. Um, and in fact, that's... The th- I, I had seen... I'd seen a bunch of original Star Trek. In fact, it's funny, after I started rewatching it, I remembered uh, watching it at my uh, like at my grandparents uh, in England, um, oh. and you know stuff like that. But um, but yeah, in general, right? It, it it it's a lot easier to come by now. Yeah, um, and I was a huge X Men fan, and still am. Uh, so we're coming at this. We're coming at these two issues uh, in opposite directions in a way. Uh, so we're going to find out who was more disappointed in this in these weird crossover comics. Um, they're, they are called Star Trek X-Men, is the first issue. It is from De- uh, December 1996, uh-huh. and it is written by Scott Lobdell with art from a bajillion human beings. Uh, Mark Silvestri, Billy Tan, Anthony Wynn, David Finch background assist by brian ching and then inks by bat detron billy tan aaron aaron <laughs> saud and joe weems and then ink assists from victor lama's team tron a team a whole team of people named team tron jose jag gillen viet trong and mike manzarek and then colors by four people this is insane I, this is a nuts. I think you said last time something about this being like the like a hip hop group of uh Yeah. It sounds like members of Wu Tang clan or something. It was like inks by like Bat, D Tron, Team <laughs> Team Tron. Yeah, Bat with two T's. Uh but the this is a this is the um Also like they each have like it lists which pages and they're like a whole bunch of non contiguous like Aaron Saud's the only one that got to do, like, a couple of consecutive pages. Yeah. I wonder if that was because of... No, it wasn't because... At first, I thought it was maybe because of ads. Like, oh, maybe page 24 is an ad. It's like, nope. Detron did page 22. Billy Tan did 23 and 24. And then Detron did 25. And then Joe Weems did 26. And Detron did 27 to 37. That's nuts. 
Uh, but these are all the Top Cow Productions Company, which Ben, you noted last time. Yeah, so I thought yeah. Top Top. It's, I saw a Top Cow coordinator uh, on the right side here of the credits, and I thought that was like an in joke for like someone, you know, the office manager. Yeah. Uh, well, Top Cow coordinator Mike Manzarek had many hats because he was also one of the thirty inkers on this book. I just noticed. Yeah. Jeez. So this was this was published in 1996, and it's 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 a very weird time for Marvel Comics. Like, in terms of where the X Men were, the X Men have just come come off of the onslaught crossover, and this makes perfect sense because this is right when Marvel Comics farmed out all of their they farmed out Iron Man, Captain America, Avengers, and the Fantastic Four to uh, Image Comics. Mm-hmm. To, to like, make those guys over and turn them into hit books again. Which make, which uh, is interesting because Top Cow is another image, um, image uh, imprint. So I guess this might have been part of that deal. They're like, we're going to give you guys these things. And also, you're going to draw our Star Trek X-Men book. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. But <laughs> what, I, what I thought at the time uh, was that the X-Men were doing this crossover as sort of like throwing Star Trek a bone. <laughs> because when I was reading, when I knew this happened, when I was like, uh, I think I was 12 when this came out from my point of view, I did not know what bankruptcy meant, which is what Marvel was going through at this time. <laughs> so I was like, Marvel's riding high onslaught was awesome. Now the X-Men are going to help out Star Trek. Okay. Uh, but Ben, you pointed out to me that, <laughs> Star Trek was actually riding quite high at this moment in 1996. Yeah, well, yeah, this was when, uh, you know, this is this was sort of the peak when, uh, you know, I think, I guess, the tail end of Next Generation, Deuce Space Nine is starting, uh, or, or is already underway, and uh, Voyager's underway, so there's, like, the most Star Trek on television uh, that there ever will be. Uh, yeah, so clearly from a from a business point of view this was this was the comic books reaching out uh to try to pull in i guess tv watchers um trying to get that trekky audience to read some comics and keep things from going under uh which i think makes some sense star trek actually had a very long history of being comic books before this yeah in fact it really wouldn't be it wouldn't necessarily be getting the tv watchers but getting like the star trek comic readers to like to check out the X-Men, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, well, and this is very much like a Star Trek story that the X-Men happened to, uh, you know, it step their way into. Yeah, I mean, do we want to run through the plot of this? Uh, I, will say, I will say that Matt's big point about this issue, one of the things that he... Matt's really good at doing this and picking up on this stuff. Matt surmised that this was probably a three or four issue miniseries that got crammed into one 40-ish page comic book. Um, Because as he astutely pointed out, Mark Silvestri, legendary artist Mark Silvestri, who was one of the artists responsible for keeping the X-Men riding high in the 80s, who is a superstar in his own right, did the first 21 pages of the issue. And on page 20 or 21 is a full page splash that very much looks like it should be continued next issue and then you get the same thing seven pages later with another full page like it is kind of obvious that it should have been it was probably intended to be a three or four issue miniseries so we'll preface 
describing the plot by saying that they crammed in a lot. <laughs> there is, yes, quite a bit. <laughs> um, um, but, so the Star Trek, the Starship Enterprise comes across a weird, uh, a weird, like, energy fluctuation type thing. It's a, yeah, an anomaly in space, which is uh, a perfectly <laughs> fine way to start off many a Star Trek story. <laughs> Every Star Trek story, right? Um, yeah, well, half of them. <laughs> but they know that it's similar to the one that they experienced in what was the, what, the, the first regular episode of Star Trek? The yeah. Gary Mitchell episode? The first, the first William Shatner pilot. Yeah. Right. Where um, they fought Gary Mitchell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is the least threatening name. For a villain ever, right. uh, which, which uh, I don't know. I keep wanting to. I keep remembering things from the previous thing, and I want to say them before I forget them. But uh, spoiler alert for this comic that came out almost twenty years ago: uh, Gary Mitchell is the bad guy, and he teams up with the X Men villain Proteus, both of which have kind of god reality reality altering powers. And we just kind of noted that those villains' names really, I think, show just how different the Star Trek and X-Men or Marvel universes are. <laughs> because, like, the X-Men get a villain who is basically, like, a kid with god powers that is kept, who, that is raised in a closet, and he gets the name Proteus. <laughs> it's like Gary Mitchell gets his powers, and he's just Gary Mitchell. <laughs> right, he's still Gary Mitchell. But though in his defense, he was only... He only had his powers for, like, a barely a day. Uh, I, I, so I if he had hung around for a little bit longer, he would have gotten a really cool name. Maybe. Uh, it's hard <laughs> to say. <laughs> so uh, the Star Trek people, the Star Trekkers, uh, are in space. And they come across a random ship that they're like, what's that ship? And then it gets destroyed. Um, after, I think, that they note that there were seven life forms on board as spock says on page six sensors indicate near human readings yeah i actually it's kind of funny that 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 stands out a lot more the second time like the first time around that seemed kind of a silly dialogue because there's so many different humanoid species that they barely ever bother you know yeah. it, would, it would just be like humanoid and that would be the end of the discussion and yeah. then the fact that uh, spock is like i didn't realize it the first time through but he's clearly uh, avoiding the word mutant, which oh, is yeah. what they were trying to, uh, what does he say? The readings indicated a variation on humans, something between humans and humanoids. <laughs> I and, like that Bones is like, near human, Spock. What the hell does that mean? Either they were or they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th actually, yeah. And throughout, throughout this book, uh, McCoy gets a lot of uh, uh, angry, uh, like, like why don't people be clear with me kind of dialogue which is kind of his thing but i feel like it's like yeah. it's like extra hammed up for this it's one it's really it's really good for exposition like the exposition you need you need when you're cramming together two franchises with decades of continuity together yes uh, he's really good at that um, so they're hanging out and then all of a sudden uh, a giant shiar a classic shiar space cruiser comes out of the energy uh, fluctuation thing which is a double page spread and it's handled really like really well. Is this like, like a is are there like is this like a is this is this like a ship like one ship or is it one of like a, is this a typical one of lots of ships? Uh, I, I know nothing about the CR. It's a typical one. Okay, so this from, is, from all my knowledge. Uh. Um 
It's funny, and, actually, this does kind of echo the, the, uh, the first Star Trek. Actually, both, both the Abrams Star Trek movies involved the Enterprise looking kind of puny by a much bigger ship. Oh, yeah, uh, it's true. And it's, yeah, so it's kind of weird seeing this, this again. I will say that I don't remember the Shi'ar ships being that huge. Like, that is massive. And the double, pra- the double page spread by Mark Silvestri and one of the Million Inkers really sells it, too, I think. Yeah. I actually think, I, I think this is another, like, sort of Star Trek, uh, you know, being sobering thing, where it's like, you know, they, they, they sat down and worked out, like, well, how many people are, how, how big of a crew is on this ship? You know, a couple yeah. hundred. Like how? You know, so how big would it actually need to be? And it's like they came up with the size, and like whereas everyone else doing a sci-fi story, just like this is badass. Like it, it should yeah. be the size of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what this is really pointing out, um, which we'll get to right now uh, about how like this really highlights the differences between how Marvel Comics creates characters and Star Trek creates characters. Because immediately after seeing the ship, um, they. On the turn of the page, and then all of a sudden you have Gladiator um, just standing in space. <laughs> <laughs> and he, it's like you've been living in a Star Trek world for like, what, four pages, five pages? Yeah. And you get to Gladiator, who is like in Superman colors with purple skin and a giant mohawk, a big cape, ripped like the rock on the best steroids. <laughs> Uh, and then everyone, like all the Star Trek crew was just like, how is he existing in space? How can he speak in a vacuum? <laughs> Not like, Which, I mean, that sh- like Kirk, I almost said Shatner. Kirk asks Spock that. Yeah. And Spock says, it is not possible. Uh, yeah. Which it's is comics. Yeah. Uh, and then the, my favorite thing, probably in both issues happens, where Gladiator punches the Enterprise. <laughs> And you don't see the actual punch. You just see him rearing back. And then on the next page, you just see everyone doing one of the classic Star Trek, like, lean forwards. Uh, yeah, that, you, that's yeah. captured pretty well for, for a still image, too. Yeah, it's really great. And then you see um, <laughs> Shatner is just yelling, did he just punch my ship? Which is amazing. Uh, uh, and then the next time you see the Enterprise, like it looks like it's like off kilter, and Gladiator is just like floating above it, which is pretty great. And as an X Men fan, when I see Gladiator pop up like that, I was like, "This is pretty great. Like, this is the kind of stuff I want to see." Are you these know, weird moments? I'm actually not. Sure. I'm looking at this again. I'm not sure what the what the scale is supposed to be because in like Gladiator appears and he's taking up the entire page. But yeah. there's like nothing but stars in the background. Like yeah. my, I assumed he was enormous, but then like, uh, and then the, the next picture of him, the Enterprise, like the perspective there could be sort of anything. Like how yeah, how do, do you know? <laughs> Gladiator's like maybe seven feet tall. Like he's within humanoid range. So is he actually just supposed to be seven feet tall and punch the outside of the ship, or is he like? Yeah. Uh, well, also because Gladiator, this is another thing I don't we didn't get to last time in the mm-hmm. episode that you did not hear, listeners. Um, the. Uh, also, we should have billboarded up top that all these pictures are going to be on the website because these things are super hard to find. So go to the website. We'll have all the pictures Yes. of all this stuff. But back to what I was saying. Gladiator is an insane character who is impossibly strong. He, like, he could, through the Marvel comic books, they basically set up that, yeah, Gladiator could punch the Enterprise. Like, it's not a surprise that he does that. Because Gladiator's entire power set is built around his own confidence. <laughs> 
So as long as Gladiator thinks he can do something, he can do it. Gotcha. Well, that would make more sense why they didn't actually show the punch, because it, like no matter how strong he actually is, it would look pathetic. Right? Yeah. If he's seven feet tall against the side of the ship, it would just be like, <laughs> knock, like... Yeah. So instead, you're seeing him rearing back the ship's internal reaction, and then the ship kind of akimbo, which is really cool. Yeah. That's nice. But that's good, actually, because uh, I, I assumed he was, like, I just assumed he had, like, Apache chief powers or something, and he was actually enormous compared to the oh, ship. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nope. Just really confident. Uh, on that same page, we also get our first glimpse of Scotty, um, who is, of course, uh, <laughs> given some great dialogue. Uh, every time he pops up, he always says laddie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're really... He, he says laddie or lass in about every line of dialogue on this. Is that similar to the TV show? Uh, no. But you know what, though? There, there's sort of... The, I, I wish there was, like, some academic thing I could point to, because I'm pretty sure that, like, most... Ca- like, when you go back and watch a show, like, all of the catchphrases and things that you, like, know that they say all the time, like, don't actually yeah. come up that often. Um, yeah that is true like i think i was watching it was a couple years ago i watched like all of uh or just watched a lot of the a team uh and i think hannibal says like i love it when a plan comes together like i don't know once every like four episodes uh yeah yeah it's just like what people uh gravitate towards and like latch onto, which is weird yeah i actually i wonder too if like i mean some of that's based on you know people repeating to each other the bits that they remember and i wonder if like like the internet is going to make that is going to change that because now you now you can just go back and watch things you don't have to sort of rely on like remembering how they went yeah Uh, there's so many like quote databases and like youtube clips where you can really get everything right if you want to yeah um so after gladiators uh punches the ship yeah after gladiator punches the ship uh, we then learned that the X-Men were on that initial ship that got ex- that got exploded and were the seven humanoid, but not humanoid, life forms. And they have now teleported uh, onto the Enterprise. And Wolverine is skulking around through, like, the air vents. Um, and on page... A, uh, a super detailed Wolverine is yeah. skulking around. <laughs> on page a- 10... You get Wolverine crouching right next to, like, with all these million lines. Like, really, Mark Sylvester is showing you his stuff right next to a Scotty that basically doesn't have a face. (laughs) Uh, Which just shows you, like, where they put... Like, on this page, they decided to work on this part of it. (laughs) Um, And what's really interesting also is that Wolverine has his bone claws in these two issues. Yeah, that surprised me, actually, because I, I didn't... I only knew of the bone claws from uh, that Wolverine Origins movie, where, and I thought they were just made up so that they would have an excuse to give young Wolverine claws. And to have a really cool, like, screaming at the heavens moment. Yes. <laughs> but no, that, um, yeah, he has bone claws, which was only revealed a couple of years before, um, because Magneto ripped out all the adamantium from his pores, like, through his pores, in X-Men number 25. Well, obviously, Brett, they had to come out somehow. So, yeah, through his pores. I mean, it could have all come out... It couldn't all have come out through his mouth. That would have been too weird. <laughs> right? Like, it would have had to have traveled through his... Ugh, yeah, well, know. how does it get into his digestive tract, right? You've yeah, just, yeah, so... You've just, you've just shifted the problem somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um... 
then we get then we're introduced to all the X-Men, and this issue stars Wolverine, uh, Jean Grey, who's going by Phoenix in this issue, uh, Cyclops, The Beast, Storm, Gambit, and Bishop, a very random assortment of X-Men, and... All, all of them labeled. All of them labeled very clearly. So this is clearly, like, so again, right, this is clearly a Star Trek comic that oh, the yeah. X-Men are in. Because we don't get labels for McCoy and Spock and Kirk. We're and Scotty. We're like an Uhura. We're assumed to know who they are. Right. Um, but the X Men show up, and they're obviously interlopers. Uh, Gambit, my one of my favorite X Men, uh, does nothing this entire issue. He is already hurt when they get to the ship, and he kind of just remains hurt the entire issue, <laughs> which is just a shame. Uh. Right, but it, it provides them the excuse to run into, well, A, to run into any other crew member, and also for uh, Matt's favorite joke. Oh, I think, I mean, America's favorite joke. The joke that we were waiting to see happen for decades. The joke that was likely the genesis of this entire project. Yeah, and probably, uh, I don't know, like a joke that, comic book and sci-fi fans have been sh- saying at conventions ever since the first one in the 70s. They go to the med bay. Uh, Beast and Storm take Gambit to the med bay. They go in there. Bones shows up. Uh, and while the- he's helping Gambit, uh, Carol, um, Nurse-, Nurse Chapel comes in, not Carol Marcus. Yeah, Car- gotta... Carol Marcus was not ever in the original TV show. Yeah, uh, Nurse Chapel appears, and she says, but we don't have any patients right now. Uh, Dr. McCoy and both Beast and Bones say what and turn around and then do a double take. Because <laughs> they're both named Dr. McCoy. Actually, the, the, the reaction is pretty uh, summed up right here, where McCoy just looks really annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Beast looks, like, fascinated by... Oh, yeah. What this could all mean. That sums up their characters really well, actually. It's a great moment. And this book, like, really thrives when it's doing those type of moments. <clears throat> like, when you're getting Gladiator punching the ship, and when you're getting uh, the McCoys looking at each other, or later on at the end of the issue where you get Gambit flirting with Ahura in the background. Like, those things are great. And I think are what this issue should have been about. But instead... Uh, it's about, <laughs> you know, them fighting Proteus and a whole bunch of other characters that show up out of nowhere. Um, like we get to the, uh, the, the, the planet surface and all of a sudden Deathbird is there with the entire Imperial Guard <laughs> out of nowhere. Um, it makes no sense. Well, I don't know. I presume that they were all on that ship and landed. I mean, is Deathbird not? Wouldn't wouldn't? Does it not make sense that they would all be on that enormous ship and that was what uh, was yeah. going on? Or it does, but I th- um, we I I don't actually know what Deathbird's status quo was at this time. I mean, both of these issues that we're talking about today really concern themselves with making sure that they fit into the Marvel universe for some reason, and I don't think Deathbird was the ruler of the Shi'ar at this time, so it's kind of weird that she's there. Um, but this happens right where Matt thinks the first issue ends because uh, there are two... Wait, no, hold on. Are there two or three? There are, on page 21 and 22 and 23, 
three pages of the most ridiculous info dump dialogue you get where you like meet Gary Mitchell, you learn about Proteus, you get Deathbird and all of her stuff. Like it's nuts. You had a really good point about um, page 21 where we get this really cool heroic splash page that was probably the last page of the original first issue where Wolverine is crouching impossibly for no reason. Yeah, they're all standing around. It's this this great collab. Well, they've all come up from... So Spock found them all uh, trying to steal a shuttlecraft and he's brought them all up to the bridge. And in this uh, off-screen... So first of all, like presumably in this like off-screen moment, they completely explain to to Spock like everything, like they've they, all of their backstories, everything that you possibly want to know, like like in this like fairly short. Well, it seems like it should have been a short walk. Like everyone's cool with each other now, even though yeah. he these people are stowaways on the ship. Uh, yeah, and so they're all sort of thrown in there, like uh, who they are and what's going on and and what's the plan, and then. Uh, Wolverine is crouching at the bottom. It's a pretty <laughs> cool looking pose, but if it's you, ridiculously if, cool. If you know how the how the bridge of the Enterprise is put together, or if you know how rooms work, like he's basically facing, he's he's face he's a, he's back to the rest of the group. He's crouched down and he's basically speaking to like the the underside of an instrument panel. Yeah, and he's saying. And if you're half the space cowboy spot claims you are, we're in a position to kick some major Shi'ar butt. <laughs> Which is a really threatening thing to say to a computer panel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that. And well, then we get to the next page uh, where Deathbird is giving this ridiculous monologue and having these long conversations with um, a Shi'ar, like, it looks like leader of some sort in Gladiator, and her back is to them. Like, she's just not looking at either of them. Hmm. They love doing that stuff in this comic book. But in this case, she's, like, on a throne, right? It's sort of a, an aloof thing yeah. where you're, and, yeah. you know, your, your dignified leader is looking out the window as they carry on your conversation minister. Yeah, I probably don't really also know, like, the Shi'ar customs. <laughs> well, yeah, well. of course. They've got, <laughs> these clearly are people with a rich cultural tradition that I think bears uh bears respecting yeah um but yeah so the x-men like decide to go after them to go after proteus and gary mitchell because of you know reasons like they're both bad news well and so uh, and so it's explained so that the third info dump page right proteus the idea right is that proteus needed a physical a, yeah, body. body and gary mitchell because his body has been uh super powered before was like a good fit even though he was dead so yeah he was dead and in that episode if i recall correctly was killed by having a rock placed over him in a very large grave <laughs> which is fine i'm not mad i should have rewatched it i feel i feel silly now Given the, no, given the ample I, I just watched it. Well, that episode is crazy because Gary Mitchell, the actor, uh, I ran the Wikipedia page. Like, you know, he his eyes have that silver, uh, like, coating over them when he gets possessed. Yeah, when they, like, contact lenses? or They were tinfoil placed between, like, two thin contact. They were tinfoil, basically. They made him put tinfoil over his eyes. Uh, and 
all those scenes are really short and he didn't like doing them because it hurts so much. And in HD, you can see that his eyes are really red. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, what was probably a really cool effect back in the you know 60s on a shitty TV. Now you can just see the pain. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if that distracts from the... I mean, he, you, you could retcon that. You could retcon the pain in. I think that's... Clearly, these powers would irritate your eyes. Retcon the pain away. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, uh, there is also a moment. Oh, where is it? I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, yeah, on page 25, we get another one of these great moments where Captain Kirk and Jean Grey are hanging out. Um, and Cap- I think Jean Grey is trying to find Proteus or whatever. Uh, and, she's, and she says, Captain Kirk, as a mutant, I was born with certain abilities and then Kirk Kirk says not the least of which is beauty Phoenix and then Gene says my husband thinks so and he's like he's like oh shot down I love that (laughs) it's so great (laughs) I assume you mean you 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 love how it shows that Kirk is respectful of people's uh (laughs) commitments yeah because yes then I would agree with you yeah I just I just love it like they incorporate Kirk's like you know, uh, status as a, as a respectful ladies' man. Yes. Um, in in that, with, with Phoenix, which is pretty great. Uh, so the X-Men go down to the planet. Also, and then, wait, also, is, is there any time to flirt? Like, yeah, they don't, yeah. <laughs> there, there's actually a lot, I mean, it, it, I think, I think, it, like, at this point, like, I remember, right, the ship got punched as a warning, but then... Gladiator just flew off and left them be like, like, I don't know. All the urgency went away. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Well, I guess I wonder if there was supposed to be more bad guy. I don't know. I mean, like, well, I mean, this is the thing, right? From a storytelling point of view, you can't have everybody panicking all the time. Else nothing happens. Yeah. But you Uh, can't have them running everywhere, which I'm a fan of. Sure. Oh, (laughs) uh, but yeah, then they finally get down to the planet in another, you know, back-to-back two-page info dump. Like, there's just a lot of word balloons on both of these uh, pages. One of the X-Men standing on Gary Mitchell's recreated streets of Scotland, which is where Proteus is from, hmm. um, which is, you know, crazy, considering that doesn't... Didn't they establish that Proteus needs... Uh, their sh- the Deathbird's ship to get off of the planet wasn't that a plot point? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that is the idea. So he can create an entire like replica of a city, but mm-hmm. not a spaceship. I mean, I guess that's you know, spaceships are very complicated. Yeah, well, buildings don't move. You just can't make yeah. flying things. <clears throat> so, I have very specific limitations on my power. <laughs> on the on these infinite powers. <laughs> I can do anything as long as it's practical. (laughs) Um, But on that page, we get like Deathbird grinding up on, grinding up on Gary Mitchell, which is pretty great. I think that Deathbird's real name is like Curry or something crazy like that. Mm. So it's funny to imagine like Cherry and Gary Mitchell. (laughs) We are Deathbird and Gary Mitchell. They will know and fear our names. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But we also get on that page. This is when they first see them, and Cyclops and Kirk both yell out Gary and Proteus, and they both turn to each other like friend of yours. I want more Kirk and Cyclops like banter. There isn't enough of that in this book. Hmm. I, I, be careful what you wish for. There's a lot of a lot in this book, though. Yeah. Is is Deathbird not? Is she like a flirt flirtatious character? Uh, I mean, in the way that most female villains are characterized as such, unfortunately, where, like, um, you know, female sexuality is always attributed to, like, the femme fatale bad girls. Yeah. So, yeah, Deathbird, uh, like, not too long after this, Deathbird and Bishop become a couple, the Bishop that's in this issue. Hmm. Like... Within a year after this, they become a couple and in an alternate reality have a daughter together. Um, so yeah, like she is, you know. So that's, that's so she's of hers. oh so you're saying at the at the time that this is happening, she's baby crazy. Yeah, <laughs> she's just like she just really wants to settle down. Because well she's, no because because we were talking about how it was odd right that she's sort of like hanging off of of Gary. It's Proteus really crazy. And the and like there's no. Well, there's no setup for that, and a couple pages like, later... Oh, go ahead. I mean, I was like, honestly, like, she looks like the Sammy sweetheart to his, um... Uh, Ronnie? Ronnie? Um, Jersey, Jersey Shore reference about a, two years after it was relevant, but I think it's very relevant in this case. Continue. <laughs> yeah, no, so, yeah, they've got two pages of them sort of being lovey-dovey and two then back-to-back pages and then nuts. and then a couple and then skipping ahead a little bit right they like the next the next <laughs> time you see them later yeah the next time you see him she's he's like casting her away he's literally throwing her so hard that she is flipping upside down and screaming you presume too much death bird thinking that we needed an ally so yeah that so. was that was another one of the things that matt suspected yeah. that that stuff had been cut out of the story it had to have been Unless Deathbird, or unless uh, Gary Mitchell, like Ronnie, becomes a different person when he drinks, right? How much could he have drunk in that? Uh, those, infinite. Those I mean, two. when you, I guess a, <laughs> pract- a practical amount. <laughs> uh, but it's it's nuts. Uh, we do get on page um, thirty another hilarious artistic moment where, at the bottom of that page, like you comparing Bishop to Scotty. And it's nuts. Oh, yeah. Like, Bishop in that, like, James Doohan wasn't a short man. He was probably six foot, right? Uh, I don't know for sure, but, but, I, I, six, that Five, sounds ten. reasonable. Yeah, Five, yeah. Yeah. So, like, Bishop is seven foot, seven two, like, he's... Which, horizontally? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, also, his bicep is as big as Scotty's waist. And Bishop isn't a muscular character either. Bishop is not a super strong guy. That's not his superpower. His superpower is absorbing and redirecting energy, which we get to uh, in the book's climax, where Bishop stands on the Enterprise and uses his mutant power to absorb all of the energy or something. Well, yeah, so that that psionic (laughs) energy rift, which was the reason the Enterprise was investigating the place and the reason that the X-Men were able to cross over from their reality, uh, that's, yeah, they, they are able to catch it in a tractor beam, which is weird, uh, and then, yeah, <laughs> and then have uh, have him redirect it. As which a is, yeah, which is crazy. Um, but I, um, 
to begin to wrap up this issue, because we pretty much hit almost everything, uh, the plot is actually kind of thin in this. Um, but the most egregious moment to me comes on page 33, uh, when Kirk and Jean Grey have gone into Proteus's mind to, I guess, to stop him or convince him to stop. Uh, and shit's going wrong and they need to just like ice him now. And but is it bones that says you call blooded Vulcan? You can't Jim and Jean are in his mind. If he dies, they die. And Cyclops yells, that's a risk they understood before going in. Do what you have to do. Which Cyclops would never in a million years even entertain the notion of sacrificing Jean Grey's life. Like, I don't care how dire the stakes are. The Dark Phoenix saga was built around the entire premise that he could not let her go. Like, he was fighting for her even when she had destroyed a planet and had galaxy-destroying power, she had to kill herself just to stop him from protecting her. So, it's kind of... I don't know. That bugged me. Yes. No, and it's definitely a weird a weird line in any... Like, even regardless, just because it's it's not even... There are usually other options. Yeah, or like, or just... Usually you say that when you're like, you're completely sure that there's no nothing else you can do, but, but there isn't really a reason <laughs> to hurry it. And then, yeah, I don't know. They go ahead and do it and everything's fine. It doesn't. Yeah, I guess it, I, I, I thought that they had like got out in time, but it doesn't even look like that happened. It just seems like, I guess bones was just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I do. I wish that like after the battle, you just got like a side, like a side shot of Storm being like, hey, uh, are things okay with you and Jean? I mean, like, you seemed really <laughs> quick <laughs> to execute just, her. To just get out of this marriage that you just got in, like, a two years before. <laughs> Ugh. Um, but yeah, they pour on Proteus. Bishop sucks up the energy. Um, and then the X-Men go home. And that's it. <laughs> like... It's very much a Next generation episode. Like, they encounter a strange thing, adventure happens, strange thing leaves. Well, I mean, that's not just yeah. Next Gen, right? That's, that's, that's Star Trek, right? It's, yeah, it's everything. It's a, well, it's ultimately, it's a serial TV show, right? It's, you've, you've got to sort yeah. of clean up at the end uh, and, and reset. But, but yeah, in, in fact, so I, you know, I went into this expecting, well, this was... Ex- I was expecting it to be crazy, which it was, but it was actually a pretty good uh, Star Trek story, really. I mean, if you just consider the X-Men to be kind of this... Like, a race just, of weird humanoids? Yeah, just like any other bunch of creatures they might find and, you know, any drama that they happen to stumble upon, like, it fits the formula pretty well. Uh, and yeah. they, they pretty much handle it the same way they do, um, which is... You know, some they they make an attempt to solve it without violence, and then, uh, well, in this case, they they didn't really. Well, they sort of they sort of have a small victory, right? Gary sort of seems to be coming around, but then they uh, they ultimately have to blast him anyway. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's actually it was a pretty good Star Trek story. Um, an but, iffy an iffy X Men story. There is there was um. To quickly point out something, I don't know if I pointed that out uh, in the Lost episode or not, uh, but I think one thing I kind of wanted, I mean, most people, the biggest complaint a lot of people have, one of the complaints people have when they're into darkness is that they, it isn't as, uh, 
obviously philosophical or, you know, doesn't doesn't overtly try to do anything of that nature, even though I, I think it does. But it isn't. I don't know. It isn't. Uh, um, it isn't the something words that I'm saying. What I'm getting at is I is that this there's a quick exchange in this issue where uh, where Kirk is like, yeah, Gary Mitchell got too powerful, so we like got rid of him because he was different. And Jean Grey says something like, different, just like we are, like mutants are, like you think, like she, you know, kind of points out their. I don't know. I think it's a, it was a really interesting dynamic. Like I would have liked to have seen them explore that a little bit more. Well, they sort of. I mean, where is that? What page is that? I can't even. I think it's on the same page he's hitting on her because that's the only page they have together. Yeah. I think... um, or it might be when he when they're in uh, Proteus's mind. But I just remember reading that and being like, "Oh, that's really interesting." Yeah. No, that is. It's right right afterwards. She on uh, on twenty five, because uh, Kirk starts to say. Gary couldn't be allowed to roam the galaxy with with mutant powers? Is yeah. that a reason to kill someone? Yeah. And then he's like and you know, then the response is like Don't don't be unfair, Gene. I have no problem with mutants or <laughs> any sentient life ones. Some of my best friends are mutants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's omnipotent beings intent on destroying everything in their past that concern me. Oh, and then Gene says, I can understand that because she can, because she was one. Ooh. But yeah, like that actually, was really I, I didn't, I didn't really pick up on that angle of it. Um, yeah. But, but now you mention it. But the point is, like, they they sort of have the discussion, but it's over pretty quick because it really is like, uh, sort of a language misunderstanding, if anything. Yeah, um, and also because they got too much story to cram into this issue and can't really devote much time to it. But but all that said, given given all that they were cramming, it's good that they they were able, they were even able to uh, work in the whole X Men you know yeah civil rights uh, angle which is really cool yeah uh now moving on to well i mean are there any final thoughts about star trek slash x-men number one uh no i mean i think i said it um yeah good episode uh now we're moving on to star trek the next generation slash x-men colon second contact number one <laughs> Which is a ridiculous title. It's but a perfect title. Perfect, because it tells you exactly what it is. Yes. <clears throat> From May 1998. So this is uh, a year and a half after the previous crossover. Uh, things for Marvel Comics have just gotten worse. <laughs> financially. <laughs> so they're going back to that well after, after First Contact, which was a big success. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, big success. So, they're looking for more of that Star Trek love. And this one is written by Dan... Uh, I, think, I believe it's Dan Abnett. I'm trying to get to the credits page. Um, Dan Abnett and in Edgington uh, with art by Carrie Nord. And whereas the previous one feels more like a three or four issue miniseries crammed into one, this, this is a 64-page comic book. Like, this just feels like a story... That is paced much better, I do believe. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, But uh, we can start off by saying that it makes some very uh, dubious claims of continuity and also expects way too much of the reader because uh, (laughs) the most 
hilarious thing, which is very indicative of comic books in 1998, is that this is a sequel to a movie that Star Trek First Contact, and at the very end of it, it has a cliffhanger into a novel. <laughs> Multimedia. So <laughs> it is a trilogy. It is the Star Trek First Contact trilogy that takes place across three different types of media, which is nuts. And I'm wait. I'm just waiting for, <clears throat> I don't know, Disney to buy Star Trek or something, and for them to finally be able to like you know release all three of these chapters together like they've always meant to be. <laughs> in what form? <laughs> well, in like a, I don't know. Maybe could, they could do motion comics and then like a uh, a podcast, not a podcast, but like an audio drama for the book, so, like motion comic audio drama. So it's a motion comic after like the first hour. The, you uh, keep the the, the the visual drops out, but you keep and, the, and then after that, yeah, like you keep losing, uh, like, <laughs> like dimensions. <laughs> you keep losing sensory experiences as the trilogy continues. God, yeah, <clears throat> but this is the meeting of the next generation cast. Oh, also the thing that I noted on the very um, front page is that they go through very painstaking. Um, painstaking means to let you know exactly when this takes place in the x-men continuity by saying this story takes place before the events chronicled in x-men zero tolerance heroes return and thunderbolts number 10 oh wait where are we this is the that is on page uh seven and that's that is nuts that like i just say like just make a star trek x-men comic and don't worry about where it fits in at all you know like, what? just make the thing. I mean, this is, pre- this is a pretty standard thing to put in a comic book, right? These, these like, little footnotes. That... <clears throat> they were at the time. They've really fallen out of favor because of this very reason mm-hmm. where um, editors and people, like, comic book people at Marvel and DC think that seeing these little footnotes are very off-putting to new readers. Hmm. Um, I think that they're helpful. Like, when I was coming up reading comics, they basically gave me a checklist to go spend money at comic book shops. Yeah, I was going to say, and in fact, I think I think if you're, if you're doing digital comics, right, you could actually make them links. Yeah, or even to you, buy. Yeah, so... That seems perfect. Um, but you know what? You know what they've actually always... Uh, I always get reminded of when I see them? What? The Bible. <laughs> because it's the only other place where I see that where, like... You you have you know just some random verse some random Bible verse there'll usually be a footnote and and yeah. it'll reference the verse that John is referring to when he says this. Th- th- I don't know. <laughs> um, well, and what's nuts is they what's nuts is that they go through that uh, all that trouble just because the Thunderbolts have a one panel cameo on page eleven. And they felt the need to justify that one panel cameo on page 11 with a footnote saying, hey, hey, don't worry. This takes place before this certain issue. What is that? So I don't know anything about that. What, what does that mean? Like, why is that? If that wasn't <clears> for <throat> the footnote, what, what conclusion would I draw? At this point in the Thunderbolts ongoing comic, the Thunderbolts as a comic book were the Masters of Evil masquerading as superheroes. Um, and so the first 10 issues of Thunderbolts the public does not know that they're actually bad guys. Mm-hmm. And then in issues 11 and 12 is when the public finds out that, oh shit, they are bad guys. And most likely, whenever this issue was published, the Thunderbolts was probably on issues 12 or 13. So if they didn't put that that thumbnail, that um, footnote in there, readers might have been like, wait a second, 
the thunder everyone knows the thunderbolts are bad guys like who why are they there didn't so and so leave the team like i'm like a couple of the members left the team like so this is basically saying this happens during the time when the thunderbolts were heroes and all these people were on the team and not the team that you're seeing right now in thunderbolts number 13 or something hmm. <clears throat> yeah so it is kind of needed but also like just don't include like there's no reason to include the Thunderbolts because they don't do anything. Mm. Basically, the Borg, like after first contact, the next generation ship doesn't go back home. It just goes further back in time to the 90s where the eugenics wars are not going on. <laughs> well, wait, wait. Should, should, we, should, we, should we step step through? The portal? Well, I mean... The plot the, portal? Before, before you get into the 90s, should we, should we <clears throat> sort of explain what's going on in this version yeah. of the story? Yeah, yeah. Should I? Yeah. So go they. For it. Uh, yeah. So so <laughs> this one picks up right after the end of first contact, uh, which involves going back to the late twenty first century, uh, and <laughs> fixing first contact with the Vulcans, which creates the Federation. Blah blah. Most of Star Trek. So so that's all done. Everything's set right. So at the end of the movie, the Enterprise flies back to the future. Except in this comic book continuity, instead of going into the future, they wind up in the 90s. Yeah. And not even their own 90s, but in the X-Men 90s. Which is the same universe as Star Trek X-Men number one from 1996, because they reference it later. To make things even more confusing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway. So, they find themselves uh, back in... Well, they find themselves in the past, and the ship of course, is damaged in some way, but of course they don't have a, you know, station to get repair parts in because it's so primitive. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they do notice that there are Shi'ar, there is Shi'ar technology uh, on, Earth. on Earth, which was interesting to me because the first, the last comic, so first of all, this comic actually has... Uh, is in continuity with the last Star Trek comic, which yeah. I was surprised that they even bothered to do that. Yeah. Um, but they then really also, the Shi'ar was completely unknown to, uh, you know, to the Star Trek universe when Kirk ran into them. But in this comic, the next gen uh, people, which is now 80 odd years later, they totally know what Shi'ar technology looks like on their sensors. So we, so they saw. So I was, they learned, yeah. Yeah, and I was actually confused. I wasn't even sure if, if Shar was like a Star Trek thing that I had forgotten about. Um, nope. But no. They are the X-Men's race of bird people. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> Everyone's got their one own of, race of bird people. Yeah. One of the... Uh, and of course, one of the inst instances of Shi'ar technology, the next-gen ship, the Enterprise detects, is of course at the X-Mansion, where... Uh, the basically the classic iteration of the X-Men are hanging out, having a reunion because Colossus, Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride are at the X-Mansion visiting with Angel, Wolverine and Storm uh, because Colossus, Nightcrawler and Kitty Pride are all on Excalibur at this time in uh, on your island in Scotland. And Banshee is vis visiting from Massachusetts where he is a headmaster at the uh, Generation X school. So it's basically like the 70s, early 80s iteration of the X-Men all having a reunion um, as the uh, next-gen team comes to visit to get their Shi'ar technology. And we get a really cool moment where um, 
where on page 16, Colossus, it's a full-page splash of Colossus behind Data, and it's great. Yes. Of Colossus sneaking up on Data. Uh, and we have to also mention the clothes that the next-gen people are wearing as they sneak around Earth. So, so actually, I just realized that this, <laughs> the, the interesting... So in, in addition to, to being in continuity, this story kind of echoes the previous story in, uh, in, in some ways. And I just realized, like, the last one started with the X-Men... Uh, you know, the X-Men crawling, you know, sneaking around the Enterprise ship looking yeah. for... In their case, they were looking for a shuttle because they needed technology to get off the ship. In this case, uh, it's reversed with the Enterprise crew sneaking around the X-Men base yeah. looking, for, uh, looking for stuff. And yes, but because they're trying to blend in, they're all wearing common 90s clothes, which involves... Uh, <laughs> Bishop was wearing a, a... Or no, Worf is wearing a T-shirt with a star on it. And some big jeans. <laughs> and a baseball. Just and pull a, a baseball cap down low. Yeah. And that's enough to hide the uh, the ridges. Data is wearing, like, a collared zip front polo, what's probably made of terry cloth shirt, and some, like, wide black, probably, like, silky cotton pants, like dress pants, dress slacks. Yeah, on this, <laughs> on this, page, on this page 16 where he's uh, with Colossus, he looks like, he just looks like somebody's dad. Yeah. Dad at the golf course. Dad at your birthday party after going to the golf course. Um, and But it also does, whereas I feel like uh, Cyclops was written poorly in the first issue, Colossus is not really written that well this issue because he did makes a lot of wisecracks. Um, I feel like most of the Star Trek characters in both of these issues kind of are written well, whereas I'm finding all these weird nitpicks with the X-Men. Say lovey. Yeah, you know, I guess that's just me. What's really interesting, with that next page where Colossus punches Data, and Data just, like, blocks... he he's Data's strong enough to block Colossus's punch, but then is pushed, like, the force of it shoves him backwards, which is pretty great. And totally messes up the floor. Which, is that a metal floor? Like, that's pretty... Yeah, I don't pretty know, intense. actually. It looks, like, it looks like it's tearing it up like it's hardwood, but... I don't know, yeah. it's, it's just an indiscriminate solid color. Yeah. So what is like so um basically they're now going to try to get back home, right? Or have they discovered the temporal anomalies yet? Or they're about to. Yeah, so with well, page twenty. So, yeah, so they get caught, um, and everyone's hanging out and, and meeting each other and uh everything's cool, and then their party gets crashed by Kang, y'all. Everyone knows Kang. Ben, you love Kang. I know Krang. Yeah. God, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't Krang. it be great? <laughs> Surprise, it's a Ninja Turtle crossover too. It would make it would make sense. Like it wouldn't be that crazy. Uh, <laughs> because Kang is not an X-Men villain. I mean, Kang is a villain that's definitely known for like manipulating time, which is a theme of First Contact, so it makes sense that he would be in this issue. Oh, is he not? He's just like a diff totally different Marvel character? He's an Avengers villain. He might also mess with the Fantastic Four some, but for the most part, he's an Avengers villain. Huh. And this was also during a time in Marvel Comics where all of the Marvel books were um, segregated, like... All the X-Men books had nothing to do with the Spider-Man books. It had nothing to do with the Avengers books. Like, they did not cross over. They did not share villains. So it's actually really interesting to see Kang in an X-Men book. Like, this might be one of the 
one of the two or three times X-Men have ever messed with Kang. So that's interesting. Hmm. Actually, I wonder, Kang... if, I wonder if that sort of explains... So Because they kind of have this really weird... <clears throat> For this story to work, right? Kang, oh, Kang yeah. So spoilers, Kang is lying to them. He's lying. And they but sort Kang. of don't... <laughs> so Kang shows up and says that the uh, Enterprise's arrival has ruptured a trans-dimensional barrier and is hemorrhaging hemorrhaging temporal matter creating chaotic anomalies in both the world's continuities blah 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 blah. you gotta help me otherwise everything gets destroyed and so yeah so so kang's like you you gotta do this here's these these devices that i've made you follow my instructions and picard who doesn't know who anybody is he just got here yeah asks do we trust him and Storm just responds, do we dare not to? If what he says is true, we have no choice but to act. Which is a fair point, but what he says might not be true. But then nobody yeah. really uh, addresses that fact. Storm, yeah. To be to defend Storm, Storm might probably don't know anything about Kang. I mean, in general, don't trust bad guys. But, you know. Or just people that show up. Unannounced. That look unannounced. like he does. Yeah. Like, I mean, just to be kind of, uh, I don't know, stereotypical or to do some profiling, he is wearing purple and green, which are the colors of bad guys. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's like an old 1940s to 60s thing. Superheroes are primary, what primary colors, red, blue, and yellow, and supervillains are orange, green, and purple. Huh. Interesting. Uh, because Joker, Riddler... Green Goblin, yeah, yeah, Kang, like a million, like Hulk is one of the few <clears throat> good guys that are those colors. Yeah, but, but anyway. he's always got solid blue shorts. Uh, yeah. Uh, so like they, the X Men then decide to go visit those two anomalies. They split up into teams of four, and. Colossus, Nightcrawler, Troy, and Picard go to the far-flung future of 2013. And um, who are the other four? Uh, Worf, Wolverine, Data, and Storm go to a uh, Star Trek. A big Star Trek thing. Well, yeah, it's the, the um, Battle of Wolf 359. That's the <coughs> most of both worlds where episodes where um, Picard gets assimilated. Uh, and leads the Borg into fighting Earth. Yeah. And both of these uh, flash-forwards or flash-sidewayses, flash-forwards, uh, are really interesting because they really make good on the promise of a Star Trek X-Men crossover by showing you these two pivotal moments in each franchise's uh, um, development or history and place characters from the opposing franchise into the moments. So in the day, in the Days of Future Past story, instead of having Rachel Gray there uh, to help send Kitty Pryde's adult mind back to the past, you have Tasha Yar there. And then similarly, in the Best of Both Worlds battle, you have uh, dead X-Man John Proudstar as an Enterprise member. Well, specifically, right? specifically in a, the Enterprise officer that dies uh, <clears throat> when Cisco is evacuating his ship. Oh, is that is that actually shown on Deep Space Nine? That character that dies? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Oh. It, in in the pilot, it's in the cool. pilot of Deep Space Nine. They 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 show the whole thing. It's actually like a horrible memory flashback that uh, Cisco is having. 
Um, it's actually really interesting because, like, you sort of see how all that... Like, when you watch Next Generation, right, like, Picard gets turned into a Borg, and there's this horrible fight, but the yeah. Enterprise makes it okay, and then they cure him, and everyone's, like, happy and go home. But then Deep Space Nine kicks off where you basically see the same events from the perspective of a commander on a totally different ship who uh, loses his wife to this... Uh, you know, because of this battle, and then, like, because Picard gets reinstated, he's also now, uh, you know, he has to serve under him. And so there's actually a really great scene where Picard is meeting with Cisco, or actually, well, Cisco's meeting with Picard about his assignment, and you can tell, like, Cisco is like, you know, <laughs> he he's 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 <clears throat> keeping his cool because he's you know in uniform and it's his superior officer, but clearly, yeah. like has nothing, wants nothing to do with this man, because uh, he blames him, not entirely, uh, not entirely in the wrong, blames him for the death of his wife. That's, and it's these, the like, huge moments, they, like, they really flash, for, flash forward to these huge moments for the characters, which is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and, and, uh. and it's funny, too, like, you know, time travel is usually sort of a, a cheap way to do things, but I think doing it in this uh, story helped hit those important moments without making it seem cheap. Yeah. Uh, like, ra- rather than just having a, a story, you know, a continuous story where they just cram in references as much as they can. Just kind of what the first one was. Yeah. In a way. Here, they just sort of, they just go. They just go, they, to, go to those moments, and then you don't have to make up, a, you know, you don't have to, like, have characters talking about those moments for no reason. You just show them. Oh, yeah. And then um, when... When they find out that Kang is lying and they need to get in touch with the two away teams, um, Kenny Pride and a returning Wesley Crusher arrive to go give word to those two disparate teams that, hey, things aren't what you think they are. And that provides fandom with a uh, slash fickable couple that I'm surprised hasn't taken off, which is that of Kitty Pride and Wesley Crusher. Who flirt like crazy in this issue. And it makes total sense. And it's really interesting. Uh, We mention uh, on page um, 43, when the two of them pair off to go, you know, try and save the day, Banshee says, It's not just me, is it, Warren? He's Irish. Uh, Kit is growing up, right? That was Irish, right? He says, It's not just me. Warren, Kitty's growing up right, and Angel says, already grown, Sean. Which you pointed out last time was kind of a roundabout callback to, like, Wesley Crusher's arc on Next Generation. Like, how, what that issue with the, that episode with the Traveler, is that his name? Yeah, so... so Ties into him also, like, Wesley also being, you know, capable and more grown up than everyone assumes. Right. So, yeah, in fact, the way, you know, the, the way they sort of find out, the way they find out that Kang is lying is because Wesley and the Traveler show up because they've figured it out. Um, we, we, and it's actually, it was kind of a, it's a good way to work them in, uh, in the sense that, like, that's the sort of thing you'd, you know, expect given, because Wesley sort of had this thing where he'd um, went away, well, for, well, early on when the Traveler is first introduced, he he's this character that is able to, like, move the Enterprise, like, three galaxies away, which is insane, and then they wind up with this problem mm-hmm. of, like, thoughts become real, 
and it's which is dangerous because people don't think very clearly. He's a Gary Mitchell. <laughs> no, yeah, but not you know, but more uh, cool, but cool, but calmer. Yeah, yeah. So uh, at the end of that episode, um, the traveler tells Picard that you know Wesley is this uh, basically called it, it's, it's this kind of cute moment where he he says to Picard like, "Are you familiar with the music?" And Picard's like, yes, yes, I know. And, and so he says Wesley's basically like Mozart, but instead of, you know, instead of being a virtuoso of music, he's a virtuoso of uh, propulsion and starship movement. And, um, mm-hmm. But basically saying that Picard should, should encourage him. And then so later in the series, um, you know, he does, Picard does, and then later in the series, uh, Wesley is um, sort of... I don't know, sort of graduates. He, he, I think he leaves Starfleet and goes off to sort of join the Traveler. And it's kind yeah. of this weird, like, exit for him. And so this is actually a, sort of a sensible way for him to, like, like a, a decent enough reason for him to come back and the sort of thing where it was like, all right, that would actually sort of make sense that, like, the, the, we have a time, we have a weird time travel story. Uh, yeah. So that fits your powers um, as opposed to, like, a lot of the more main mundane stuff that the that the enterprise has to deal with where stuff you know all that stuff would kind of be would just be strange yeah and because of this we get a really cool this thing this issue does well which is really uh cool is like they really hit these interesting emotional things like when they travel to the days of future pastime (coughs) god i am needs water i'm fine (laughs) I have water. I don't know what my problem is. Um, when they travel to the Days of Future Past time period, Kitty Pride gets to see... Uh, it's so hard to talk about this moment because of all the weird, twisty time travel things. Basically, when, when Kitty Pride joined the X-Men, the very first thing that happened to her was her brain was taken over by a future version of herself that was sent back to warn the X-Men to like go stop an assassination and prevent an apocalyptic future. So, basically, the the initial big thing that happened to Kitty when she was on the X-Men, she didn't even know that it happened because her brain was hijacked. So, because of this issue, Kitty gets to travel to a version of that of those events from the future point of view and see her elderly self going under and going back in time to replace her when she first joined the X-Men. And Kitty cries. Like, she does a really badass thing of killing, of destroying a sentinel. And then she just like, I've been told about this moment, but to see it. And she starts crying, which is so cool. (laughs) It's such a cool moment to have her see this thing that she never saw before that always was like, meant so much to her. I don't know. Really cool. Uh, And it follows page 54, which is my probably favorite page of the entire issue. Because it's this gorgeous shot of Kitty... Hmm. dropping off a giant slab of concrete in a sentinel's head and then it explodes and then she lands. There's just like a grace to the images that I really like. Hmm. I don't know. But yeah, I, don't know. I, I didn't really... I, I, <clears throat> I sort of... This didn't really catch my eye, to be honest, the first time I read it, but but uh, now that you've sort of paid, drawn my attention to it, I, I, I see what you're saying. Like, just like, the way that Kitty's smiling in that first panel as she passes through the head and like the the like the curve of the hip and all that like it's just, it's it's very fluid and has a good sense of motion. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's it's just good comic book art, which is not really that present in the other one. Yeah. Um, also on page fifty six, uh, Riker and Banshee team up for a page, which is two of my crushes on one page, which was the moment that I was waiting for this entire issue. <laughs> Oh jeez! Uh, just just step back a second with the uh, the, the Kitty Pride uh, plot too. Just oh yeah, another cool thing that that sort of mirrored the last uh, Star Trek comic was the idea of somebody using their uh, powers to channel psychic energy, right? In the in the last one, it was uh, Bishop, right? That channel, yeah, yeah. channels the cloud to use an attack. And this one, Troy, I guess because uh, Kate, I don't know something. Uh. Tasha Yar? Kate Pride needs to go back in time and Tasha's like powers are zapped or something. Yeah, and so so uh, so Troy actually acts as the as a bridge to help channel that uh, well, yeah, cha- channel her consciousness back to the past, uh, to Kitty's past self. So yeah, uh, another nice little uh, sort of uh, callback. Yeah, and then they um they defeat Kang. They, they, uh, you know, everything gets clean, clean and tidy. Well, they don't even, like, do, do they, oh, that's right, they actually find, that's right, because they actually go find his time ship. Yeah. The Traveler helps them find the time ship, and then they shoot at it. They shoot it up. And then we get another goodbye scene similar to the one of the first issue, where the uh, X-Men are beaming off of the Enterprise, um, in a page that is at, filled with as many, like, Side jokes as the first one with Gambit flirting with Ahura. On this page, we get Wolverine has apparently given Worf a cigar, and Worf is looking at it and he says, Stogie? Which is pretty great. <laughs> and you also get Kitty Pride giving Wesley Crusher a kiss on the cheek. Ship it, guys. Ship it good. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's that issue because. And that issue sh- should have ended here, it should have ended with that. But you turn the page, and then there is a... They arrive back to Earth, and the first thing someone says, the balloon is not clear. Well, that was quite a trip. But it would be good to... Oh no, how can this be? Good question, Elf. Good question. To be continued. And what? In, the, in the novel. <laughs> in, in a novel. Read a whole damn novel. Did you, did you look at the... Do you know what they're looking at? <clears throat> Uh, did you not read the summary? I, no, I had a week and I did not. Uh, I read it a week ago. Um, I think like they, they return to their... It's basically like a Back to the Future 2 type deal. They go back and apparently I think like the Borg have taken over uh, Earth or something. Oh. The Borg have taken over their version in 1998 and they have to go and team up again to stop it. <clears throat> do you think uh, back a page the whole the captain's log uh what would i guess there'd be speech bubbles but they're drawn like as oh yeah as like next generation instrument panel text with that's like cool cool that's or overkill cool. i don't know i'm kind of because t- they're hard <laughs> to read like that's true yeah they are uh well this is also uh I guess you could also look at these 90, 1996 and 1998. There are big, some big leaps were made in terms of just computers mm-hmm. and how they influenced comic book making. Mm-hmm. Um, as evidenced on page, oh that one, that one panel of Troy. I'm trying to find that page 
early on. Uh, page nine. There's like the computer coloring of this issue is kind of ghastly at times. Never more evident than on page nine in Troy, who looks like she has a noseless robot face. Troybot. Troybot. Um, so I think that they were like, oh, well, we can make narration captions look like a captain's log thing. Yeah. So we should. <laughs> yeah, I think I would actually, yeah. I, 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 the fact that they're captain's logs and so therefore there's sort of the idea that, well, within the story, they would presumably be on a screen somewhere. Yeah. I think, like, that, you can get away with that. If they did that for <laughs> every bit of, like... And I guess they don't, because they have this other style of, of, of uh, speech bubble. For Well, no, those are for... Um, yeah, no, that's just for off-screen dialogue. Yeah. But if all, yeah. like, the sort of... If it was, like, all, like, the uh, like narration or, like, inner, inner, inner monologue stuff was like that, I would... Be too that, much. That'd be too much. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So overall thoughts about these two issues. I think. Uh, I think the second one, Next Generation, one is actually a good comic book. I would say uh, it's more enjoyable. Um, had much more thought to it and felt like a more complete story. I do. I do think that maybe um, the first one has much bigger laughs, like Gladiator punching a ship and like. Spock nerf pinching Wolverine, like those moments are great, but the story is a mess and the art is not that good. Uh, yeah. What did What did you take away? I I agree, and I think that sort of sums up uh, the two Star Trek series as well, right? The first one was really kind of like inconsistent story wise, and like you know was much more about the characters and the moments than uh, you know to be an original series fan, you have to sort of be a lot more forgiving. Right, Next Generation was, uh, you know, started after. I don't know. There was a lot more investment made in it, and it was like yeah. a lot more of a, a polished show, and and definitely, I mean, even right, even the captains, right? Picard is a much more buttoned-down, traditional, uh, by the book kind of guy than, yeah. than Kirk was. So yeah, these these comic books actually kind of reflect that. That first that first yeah, comic do. book was like kind of a hasty, pioneering see to your pants kind of thing and styrofoam and, rocks everywhere yeah also yeah if you think about it like they don't really do that much like there are only like two different locations in the entire issue <laughs> when they For, go to the planet they just go to like a kind of weird like they go to they make it look like scotland which is easier to recreate than an alien planet i would, that would, be, lo- that would be awesome if it was like well look we already have these pictures of scotland lying around we could just <laughs> Because you I know, love that. they did that in the original series. They actually, yeah. the reason there are like episodes with like Nazi planets is because there was like, they had recently on the like Desilu <laughs> lot they had just filmed a World War Two movie, and so it was like, well, we could use all these costumes for free, and Roddenberry's like, well, we let's save money and do it. That's so great. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume that the top cow people did all that on purpose, and they were like, nah, we're gonna, we're only gonna use two sets because it's so original series. <laughs> I love that. Um, great. Uh, thank you, Ben, for coming along for this ride again. We will now cut to Matt giving some of his thoughts. Uh, this is the type of thing that I don't know that this will ever... Do you feel like this will ever get like a solid reprint? Because now that Marvel's owned by Disney, and Star Trek is very specifically a Paramount franchise, um, this was this was of a different time. For sure, when Marvel had an initiative where they were actually publishing uh, Star Trek comics. By the way, I love 
two, that we have an X-Men villain with uh, a grandiose name, Proteus, uh, teaming up with the Star Trek villain, Gary Mitchell. Is it just me, or did this feel like this was like a four-issue miniseries that they just, like, slashed pages out of and condensed into one issue? It's a lot of story, and it also just makes these drastic leaps in the middle of the story itself. I don't know if it would have held together as much even as a four-issue miniseries, but I think that's why this seems so confusing because, again, too, Deathbird and Gary Mitchell embracing on page 28 and then page 29, 30, 31, he turns on her in a very awkward panel where you can't even really tell that he's turning on her. So both of these books, from a comic book standpoint, are fascinating to me because they're very 90s in different ways. The first one was very 90s because the plot is crazy. We have this very stylistic uh, 90s-style art that everyone remembers, right? But, but this next one is very 90s in the sense that it is the sequel to a movie that has continuity parameters immediately and ends as a cliffhanger leading into a novel. Yeah, and I'll tell you, too, the the art here. I mean, Carrie Nord is a, such a great artist and already had a photorealistic style, and I think he just does a phenomenal job with, uh, with composition and big moments. Those two, those two seem to have a good rapport. Again, too, I think it's a great job on the writer's part to... You know, I, I, this is me, like, wondering about the production process, but I wonder if it was, okay, you're going to have this crew, this is going to be the next generation crew you have, and this is what they're coming out of. Now, you get to pick some X-Men, and they took a look at who was available and found a way to kind of, you know, pair them off in ways that made sense. Like, Wolverine Wharf makes sense. That's true. That's true. There's a lot packed into these 62 pages. Uh, a lot of plot, and and I think I, I think the next generation book has a lot more cool sort of uh, synergistic moments. So yeah, uh, thank you again, Ben. And if you're interested in purchasing Star Trek X Men number one or uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation X Men Second Contact number one, you can do so at mycomicshop.com. I uh, go through there through the links on our site, and that will kick some money back our way. So please do that. And while you're at mattandbrettlovecomics.com, check out our back issues like Friend of the Podcast, Nicole Dressel, and Late Night with Jimmy Fallon writer Benjamin Apple talking about The Goon from Dark Horse Comics, number 36 through 39. Or you can listen to America Won't Shut Up host Jason Flowers talking about JLA's Rock of Ages, which is a good Superman action-adventure story, which you can listen to to prepare for Man of Steel. It's coming out in a couple weeks. So that uh, has also... nothing to what? do... I'm sorry. That has nothing to do with that uh, Tom Cruise musical. No. Okay. It predates it for a while. But uh, you should probably definitely listen to the Rock of Ages soundtrack while reading those issues, I think. That makes sense. That's pretty good music. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> that was the whole idea, right? They took, they took songs that were already yeah. very popular. People have seen it hundreds of times, as evidenced by those horrible commercials. <laughs> uh, also, we love hearing from you guys, our listeners. So please tell us what you think about this or any past episode on our website or Facebook page at facebook.com slash theylovecomics. You can also find links to all of our social media presence under the Who Loves Comics tab on the website. And if you fancy what you've heard here today, please rate and review the show in iTunes 
which helps us out immensely. And you are also our best spokesperson. So tell all your friends about this show. We mean this. And if you're in North Carolina, Charlotte, at Heroes Con this weekend, be on the lookout for our faces, which you can easily see on the website. You can come and say hi to us or tweet at us, and uh, maybe we'll see you on the floor. Um, as always, thank you, Ben, for putting all this uh, stuff together. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Uh, we got we to gotta work cut out with this one. Ugh. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um... But yeah, thank you again, and any parting thoughts? No? No parting thoughts? Live long and prosper. Oh, that was good. Um, uh, does a mall babe eat chili fries? What? That is a Jubilee quote from the second episode of X-Men. You went with Jubilee. Well, I, the X-Men don't have a... They don't have a catchphrase like live long and prosper. I don't yeah, I mean, I feel like Professor X would have had something to eat that he uses uh, a bunch. To me, my X-Men, that's Or or like more like uh welcome to the X-Men Captain Kirk, hope you survive the experience. That is a X-Men catchphrase. Just put someone else's name in there for Captain Kirk. Okay, we're... <laughs> Hope you survive the experience. Hope you survive the experience. Until next time, I am Brett. Matt is somewhere else. And I'm Ben. Yeah, and... We, we love, love comics. comics. And Star Trek. Matt and Brett love comics, like sticking pepper in your ears.